everyone, and good afternoon. Welcome to this reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. I'm your reader for today. My name is Andrew Haup. I am filling in, and we're going to take a look at these headlines, and then we'll take a check of the forecast. Winter returns with a vengeance is our headline story and photo, and it shows a resident clearing away snow from a vehicle on Iowa Street in Dubuque on Thursday when 9.4 inches of snow fell. That's incredible. I'm here in central Iowa, and it's sunny, and it's going to be warm today. So uh, it's quite a difference from what we're experiencing here. Uh, you all got quite a bit of snow. County attorney treasurer push their priorities in budget plans. Adding a position, increasing wages, and raising fees are among goals outlined to Dubuque County Supervisors, written by ben, Benjamin Fisher. That story. And then finally, DB&T planning to move to 700 Locust Street, the main branch of the bank. Based in Dubuque, we'll be re relocating to the former Roshek building. All right, these stories and more on this reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. But first, let's take a check of the forecast from the National Weather Service for Dubuque and the tri-state area. Well, for this afternoon, you can expect sunny conditions with a high near 30 degrees. Those winds very mild out of the northwest, up to 10 miles per hour. Sunny conditions, a high of 30 for your Friday afternoon. For tonight, expect clear skies, a low around 18 with winds from the west Shifting to come from the south after midnight, very mild there, around 5 miles per hour. For Saturday, expect sunny conditions. Those winds from the southwest gusting as high as 25 miles per hour, high uh, near 38 degrees. For Saturday night, expect clear conditions. Winds from the southwest gusting as high as 20 miles per hour, low around 23. Sunday, sunny with a high near 39. Sunday night, mostly cloudy with low around 26. Monday, sunny with a high near 41. Monday night, mostly clear with low around 28. And Tuesday, rain likely after 1 in the afternoon. Partly sunny conditions with a high near 43%. That chance of precipitation is 60%. But again, for this afternoon, Friday afternoon in Dubuque, sunny conditions, a high of 30 degrees. Now let's get into the headlines here on the front page of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for this Friday edition. We're starting off now with Winter Returns, dot, 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 with a vengeance. This written by Eric Hogstrom of TH Media. The largest single-day snowfall in eight years in Dubuque snarled local roadways for a good portion of Thursday, with authorities asking motorists to stay put at times. A total of 9.4 inches of snow was reported at Dubuque Regional Airport as of 6 p.m. The airport is in the city of Dubuque's official reporting location for the National Weather Service. In East Dubuque, Illinois, 7.5 inches of snow fell, while other local notable totals included Cuba City, Wisconsin, with, with 6 inches, Plattsville, or Platteville, I'm hoping I'm saying that right, or is it Plateville, Platteville, and Lancaster, Wisconsin, 5 inches, Galena, Illinois, 4 inches, and Maquoketa, Iowa, 2 inches. Initially, we had 3 to 5 inches forecasted for Dubuque, but we knew there was a chance for a heavier band of snow and had a potential for a higher amount. That says David Cousins, a weather service meteorologist. It's set up over Dubuque. 
The last time Dubuque received about this much snow on a single day was on February 1, 2015, when the airport reported a two-day total of 12.8 inches, with about 10 inches falling in one day. There were several double-digit snowfalls in the 90s, and from 2011 to 2015, there was one about every other year. But there hadn't been any since 2015, Cousins said. Dubuque's record one-day snowfall is 15 inches that fell on March 5, 1959. When you have a storm system that is very intense, what happens is that when precipitation starts falling, a cooling in the atmosphere occurs and there is a switchover from rain to snow, Cousins said. With Thursday's storm, we were expecting a more gradual changeover. Instead, the storm transitioned quickly from rain to snow with very little sleet in between. When you have sleet, that uses a lot more of the moisture in the atmosphere, Cousins said. Without significant sleet, there was ample moisture for producing snow. The transition to snow was faster than expected, and there was a longer duration of higher-intensity snow, Cousins said. There were some snowfall rates of 2 to 3 inches per hour over a 2 to 3 hour period in Dubuque. Dubuque Police Department Lieutenant Brennan Welsh, Welsh said the biggest traffic-related issues related to the storm happened on Dodge Street and on US 61-151 between downtown Dubuque and Key West, where some eyes were jackknifed or disabled. A downed tree blocked traffic on Dodge Street just east of Bryant and Hill Streets. There also were downed power lines on Romberg Avenue and Shearis Avenue, and trees were downed on Kaufman Avenue and Kane Street. All of those things just kind of added together, Welsh said. Highway 61 and 20 both had periods of time where they were completely at a standstill for upwards of two hours. Officers were working with tow trucks to back the tow trucks down the wrong lane to get the semis out of there. It, dot, 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 in the story, there's a break. It seems every five, ten minutes, there's another call about an accident or stuck vehicle, and those people are waiting a long time for officers to free up from other accidents. From 8 a.m. to 4 p.m., Dubuque police responded to 71 weather-related calls for service. The block traffic made it difficult for plows to clear the highways, Welsh said. It really was kind of an all-hands-on-deck kind of day, he said. We were not only using people on patrol, but holding people over, whose shifts ended this morning and calling people in for their shifts early. Dubuque Public Works Director John Klosterman said a normal snow removal shift consists of 15 plows, all of which were out by 8 a.m. Thursday. As the snow increased, we increased the size of our fleet, and with help from other departments, both in equipment and personnel, we were able to increase that up to 38 total plows out, he said. Klosterman said crews would work overnight to clear roads, though the number of plows would drop back to the typical 15 around midnight. Our focus right now is primary and secondary streets and getting those pushed back, he said Thursday afternoon. On residential streets, trucks are in those areas, but they're just making a double pass right now, concentrating on the driving lanes. Throughout the night, our plowing effort will get those streets cleared closer to the curb, and by tomorrow morning, we'd be hoping that all residential streets would be plowed back. City officials announced shortly before 11.30 a.m. Thursday that they had pulled solid waste collection vehicles from their routes. Klosterman said crews plan to finish up routes that went uncollected today. Today, our first focus will be clearing up the routes that were not finished Thursday, and then we'll move on to Friday routes after that, Klosterman said. That will delay the collection of the Friday routes, so people that are used to having their solid waste picked up between 6 and 8 a.m. will have to wait until a bit later in the day, but we should be able to get through all of them. 
Dubuque's odd even snow route parking will be in effect today and Saturday, February 11th on streets identified with snow route signs. Residents will not be allowed to park on the even numbered side of those streets today and the odd number side on Saturday. All right, everybody's digging out. And that means it's time for more news. If you're tucked inside today enjoying a nice warm afternoon, we hope you are. You're listening to Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. Andrew Hopier saying, so glad to have you with me and with us here on Iris on the network. County Attorney, Treasurer pushed their priorities in budget plans is our next headline story. Adding a position, increasing wages, and raising fees are among goals outlined to Dubuque County Supervisors. This written by Benjamin Fisher. Dubuque County's new county attorney and treasurer each recently offered budget proposals setting their own priorities for those departments. The proposals from County Attorney Scott Nelson and County Treasurer Michael Klassen to the County Board of Supervisors come as that body works to develop the county budget for the fiscal year starting July 1st. One of the county attorney's duties is to represent the county government in litigation and provide legal guidance to other elected officials, department heads, and advisory boards and commissions. But the office currently has no one assigned specifically to that duty. The previous county attorney, C.J. May III, had a background in local government representation, so he handled all those duties and did not fill a civil attorney position that past county attorneys had tasked with county government duties. County Supervisor Ann McDonough has asked Nelson to devote an assistant county attorney to that task. We are a rare county to not have a dedicated civil advice for all the sorts of things we are doing, she said. We could use some focused help on many things. During his presentation, Nelson said the county board would have to budget for a new position to fill that role. If that's what the board wants, I would ask for another $100,000 on expenses so I can go out and find another attorney, he said. There's a lot of burden on these current assistant county attorneys. Nelson's chief focus in his budget proposal was significant wage jumps for existing staff. In the last quarter of 2022, Nelson said the county attorney's office worked on 87 drug cases, 60 domestic abuse cases, 30 sexual assault or sexual abuse-related cases, 202 driving-related cases, and hundreds more in other more minor categories. Up until now, crime has been going up, not down, he said. We want to turn that around and start bringing crime down in the county, but we can't do it short-staffed. According to both Nelson and county records, the office currently has eight assistant county attorneys, a lower number than it has had in the past. A ninth assistant county attorney position is vacant and has been for nearly a year. It's my understanding that the net has been thrown out on three separate occasions to try and get someone in, but that all three times they've pulled the net in and found license plates and hubcaps. That's all they found. Nelson said no one is biting on it. The opening salary listed for the position has been $80,000. Nelson requested $20,000 more to potentially offer applicants for that position before posting it again. Supervisor Harley Pothoff asked if that would cause problems with any current assistant county attorneys who are paid less than that. But Nelson said the newest attorneys had salaries of just more than $90,000 and that the rest have salaries of $100,000 or more. I don't want infighting either, as you can understand, Nelson said, but I have to have someone to get them into the office. And $80,000 not getting there. Nobody will work for that. Potoff said difficulties in hiring are not limited to the county attorney's office. Everybody's having trouble recruiting people, whether that's the sheriff's office, county attorney's office, Wright Height, Simmons, Pet Food, he said. 
Nelson said that attorneys are harder to find than other employees because of the more training and there's more training involved there. For his department, Claussen shared plans to increase numerous fees in an attempt to fund his department without county tax revenue. Clayson or Claussen, I think it's Claussen, said the county now receives one dollar per new vehicle res- registration. $2.50 per property title and 60% of a $10 security interest notation fee that vehicle owners with loans pay. Some of those have been limited by state code for decades at the same rate. So Claussen has joined a lobbying effort behind state legislation this session to raise or eliminate those caps. If that effort succeeds, Claussen said he intends to increase the amount the county receives from each of those fees by $10. Such a move would require that those fees be increased for residents. When I look at what we currently do in our department for those three transactions, we potentially could be looking at a $500,000 increase in annual revenue if these bills pass, he said. The way that we can help sustain some of the services we have is updating things that haven't been updated in 30 or 35 years. Claussen said he hopes to further increase revenue by renegotiating interest rates with banks at which county money is held, attempting to spur more people to get passports via his office and more and decrease expenses, such as those for mailing and postage. McDonough pointed out that while not a tax, significant fee increases still are additional costs for residents. So she questioned Claussen's stated goal of making his department break even. We're not making and not selling a product. We're not making widgets, she said. It's a basic service, so I wouldn't expect you to have citizens pay fees to the point that you're not a county governmental body that needs support. Clawson said that elected officials should strive not to be funded by taxes. The supervisors have not formally decided on budget requests yet, but they are required to submit a budget to the state government by the end of March. Our final front page story in the Dubuque Telegraph Herald, DB&T planning move to 700 Locust. The main branch of the bank based in Dubuque will be relocating to the former Roshek building. This story by Kaylee Reese. The main branch location for a Dubuque-based bank will relocate this year. Dubuque Bank and Trust will move out of its longtime home at 1398 Central Avenue and into 700 Locust, the new name of the building at 700 Locust Street, after being rebranded from the Roshek building. HTLF, the holding company for DB&T, and Cottingham and Butler purchased the building in late 2019 and moved employees into the space. The relocation to 700 Locust is part of our continued investment in downtown Dubuque. That says Tyson Leyendecker, president and CEO of DB&T. We feel the relocation comes with many benefits with the investment down there in 700 Locust. Our employees will have access to state-of-the-art amenities. DB&T was chartered in 1934 and moved to the location at 14th and Central a decade later. Ryan Lund, director of corporate communications for HTLF, stressed that DB&T's move is separate from the charter consolidation currently underway for HTLF, and there will be no changes to DB&T once the charter consolidation is complete. HTLF's corporate headquarters moved from Dubuque to Denver as of January 1st, but company officials previously said Dubuque's operations would remain largely unaffected. The company has been going through the process of consolidating its 11 bank charters into one based in Colorado, a move expected to be complete later this year. 
Each of our banks, as they consolidate, become part of HTLF Bank, but that has not occurred yet with DB&T, Lund said. This is not scheduled to take place until the third quarter. The relocation and the charter consolidation are two separate things. It doesn't change anything. As we have said many times, this does not change our commitment to our local brands. With the move, Lion Decker said DB&T employees will be able to access new amenities, such as a dining area, fitness facility, and rooftop area with meeting and outdoor space that have been added to 700 Locust since HTLF and Cunningham and Butler began extensive renovations on the building. HTLF has invested millions of dollars in renovating, updating, and relocating its employees to 700 Locust, said Bruce K. Lee, HTLF president and CEO, in an emailed statement to the Telegraph Herald. This significant investment reinforces HTLF's commitment to Dubuque and our employees here. Lion Decker said officials anticipate the bank at 700 Locust to be open and operational by the end of the year. This will allow us to collaborate more closely with our partners at HTLF and give our clients an experience at a level that they haven't seen from us in the past, he said. The bank's customer lobby will be located in the southwest corner of the building's first floor at the entrance off of Locust Street. Private banking offices will be on the mezzanine level and commercial and wealth management groups will be housed on the fourth floor. Lund said all of about 40 employees from the Central Avenue branch location will move to 700 Locust with the change. The relocation will happen in phases, Lund said. We will be transitioning employees to 700 Locust in the second half of the year. Discussions on what will become of the Central Avenue building are ongoing, but the bank at that location is expected to be closed by the end of the year. We've been actively working on that, Lion Decker said. Right now, it's too soon to say, but there have been some great ideas that we have been discussing. In addition to the move of the main banking location, the lobby of the DB&T branch on Loris Boulevard is expected to reopen by the end of this year. Referred to as the Motor Bank, the Loris Boulevard location was changed to drive through only in 2018. Retail customers who prefer to bank in person will continue to have that option in the north end of Dubuque, Lund said. Lund added that HTLF is excited to have many DB&T employees benefit from 700 Locust, from the building's state-of-the-art amenities to the open floor plans and workspaces designed to foster collaboration. HTLF has invested millions of dollars into renovating and relocating employees to 700 Locust, he said. It's an investment for all employees in the area from both HTLF and Dubuque Bank and Trust. In an emailed statement to the Telegraph Herald, Lion Decker said the move, as well as DB&T and HTLF's recent donations to local nonprofits, shows their commitment to the community. DB&T and HTLF's $100,000 donation to five Dubuque-based nonprofits demonstrates our ongoing commitment to the community, Lion Decker's statement reads. With over 88 years of growth in Dubuque, DB&T and HTLF continue to reinvest with our new branch at 700 Locust and our continued support of local nonprofits. That takes care of everything on the front page. Moving on now to page 2A of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for this Friday, February 10th edition. University of Dubuque grad competing on the Traders. An amazing experience is what this grad says. This story by Elizabeth Kelsey. Upon his graduation from the University of Dubuque in 2015, Christian De La Torre never would have imagined that eight years later he would star in a reality television show. But the military veteran described his time filming a show called The Traitors, 
a new series on streaming service Peacock, as an amazing experience. A Madison, Wisconsin native, Della Torre, said he found a home at UD, where he ran track and field and was a Reserve Officer Training Corps member. I can't say enough about how community-driven and family-oriented UD felt to me, he said. After graduating with a criminal justice degree, Della Torre spent four and a half years in active duty with the U.S. military before being medically retired in 2019. He worked briefly as a youth corrections officer before, on a whim, he purchased a recreational vehicle and began traveling the country, documenting his adventures online. At the suggestion of a friend, Della Torre moved to Los Angeles, where friends urged him to seek acting work. On his first job as an extra, he met actor Al Pacino, who took a moment to chat with him. That inspired me to keep pursuing this career as an actor, Della Torre said. He slowly began booking larger jobs, including commercials with brands such as Adidas. Calls for reality TV shows began coming in until he landed a spot on The Traders and traveled to the Scottish Highlands in early 2022 for filming. The show's contestants are a mixture of ordinary civilians and celebrities, competing for a grand prize of $250,000. Out of 20 people, three are chosen as traitors and must work together to eliminate faithful contestants, while the faithful work to discover the traitors and vote them off the show. It was like Clue, Mafia, and Knives Out all put into one reality TV, Della Torre said. You're competing, doing challenges, and trying to earn money. But you also have to eliminate someone every night who you think is the traitor. Spoiler alert, at the beginning of the series, Della Torre was chosen as one of the traitors by host Alan Cumming. He said he was excited to play the devious role, and he utilized his knowledge from criminal justice classes at UD, his military experience, and his acting skills to carry out his tasks. I tried to take all I had learned about body language and what people do when they're nervous or lying, reverse my psychology and thinking, and be the exact opposite of what I was taught, he said. Later adding, I looked at the role of the traitor on, as a mission, so I was pretty cutthroat. Earlier this month, the traitors was renewed for a second season. Della Torre can't confirm or deny his involvement in the new season, but said he would love to come back, though perhaps not as a traitor. The lying and manipulative or manipulation were more emotionally draining than the military veteran anticipated. We're all about integrity and honesty, so it was gut-wrenching, he said. I cried every night, but I knew that when I came out of my room in the castle every morning, it was game on. In other news, we have news in brief. Police released name of man found dead in local garage fire. Dubuque police on Thursday released the name of the man found dead in a Dubuque garage that was on fire Wednesday. Daniel C. Montelius, age 46 of Dubuque, was found dead in the garage to the rear of 1428 Iowa Street, according to a press release. Authorities were alerted to the fire at 8.23 a.m. Wednesday. A 911 caller advised that someone was inside the garage, according to a press release. Police said Montelius was found dead just inside the door of the structure. Lieutenant Brennan Welsh said it is unknown if Montelius was living in the garage and that his cause of death will not be known until the state medical examiner's office comes to a conclusion. The Dubuque Fire Department is being assisted by the Iowa State Fire Marshal's office with the investigation into the fire, the release states. Dubuque Fire Chief Amy Scheller said the Fire Marshal's office investigation into the source of the fire had not yet concluded. He is leaning toward accidental at this time, she said of the fire's cause. He still needs to conclude the investigation, but he has not found anything to show that it was intentional. 
Agency identifies Pearl Harbor remains of Monticello native. Dateline Monticello, Iowa. U.S. officials have identified the remains of a sailor killed in the World War II attack on Pearl Harbor as those of an Iowa native. The Defense POW-MIA Accounting Agency announced this week that Navy Seaman First Class Donald A. Stott, aged 19 of Monticello, was accounted for on March 26, 2021. A press release states that Stott was aboard the USS Oklahoma when Japanese aircraft attacked the battleship and other ships at the Honolulu base. Navy personnel recovered the remains of the deceased crew from December 1941 to June 1944. The remains were interred in the Halawa and Naunu cemeteries in Hawaii. In 2015, the agency exhumed the remains of those who were on the USS Oklahoma and began using dental, anthropological, and DNA analysis to finally identify the men, including Stott. He will be buried on March 25th in Monticello. Loris, a student seriously injured by train in Dubuque, police say. Police on Thursday confirmed that a person was injured by a train over the weekend. Jaden P. Upton, age 21, a Loris College student from Rock Island, Illinois, was taken by ambulance to Unity Point Health Finley Hospital before being airlifted to the University of Iowa hospitals and clinics in Iowa City for advanced trauma care. That's according to Dubuque Police. Lieutenant Brendan Welsh wrote in an email to the Telegraph Herald that police responded at approximately 12.35 a.m. Sunday to the area under the 3rd Street Bridge near U.S. 61-151 for a report of someone yelling for help. Police found Upton lying along the Canadian National Railway tracks. Welsh wrote that Upton was conscious and alert but had sustained severe injuries to his left arm and leg due to an apparent train strike. Canadian National Police Service, a private force linked to the railway company, is investigating the incident. In our final brief story here, police say pedestrian was struck by vehicle and possibly injured. Police said a pedestrian suffered possible injuries when he was struck by a vehicle Tuesday in Dubuque. Jerome W. Loney, age 72 of Dubuque, was taken by ambulance to Mercy One Dubuque Medical Center for treatment of possible injuries, according to Dubuque Police. The collision occurred at about 12.15 p.m. Tuesday at the intersection of Main and West 5th Streets. Police said a vehicle driven by Ralph R. Potter, age 69 of Dubuque, was stopped on Main at the stop sign at the intersection when Potter's vehicle turned right from the stop sign and struck lonely in the crosswalk. Potter was cited with failure to yield to a pedestrian within an intersection. In other page, 2A News. Panel discussed the city's need for diverse, accessible art. That's written by Joshua Irvin. A Wednesday night community conversation at Steeple Square drew attention to Dubuque's arts scene and making it more inclusive for artists and audiences. Representatives from the City Dubuque Museum of Art, the Grand Opera House, the Dubuque Symphony Orchestra, and local artists weighed in as panelists for the latest in a series sponsored by TH Media and the Community Foundation of Greater Dubuque. Some 80 community members joined them, one of the largest audience showing since the first community conversation addressing housing last year. Panelists and statistical data contend Dubuque's arts scene is vibrant and active, particularly for a Midwestern community of its size. U.S. data from 2020 shows overall growth in the number of arts, entertainment, and recreation establishments in the city since 1978, though those figures had declined slightly since 2016. 
Cultural vitality is often expressed in whether these organizations prosper, so it's good to see that, said Jason Nesis of the Community Foundation. But polling data from the Community Foundation's 2015 equity profile also indicated a perceived lack of diversity in Dubuque's art scene and its audiences, with cultural learning opportunities limited to Carnegie Stout Public Library and the Multicultural Family Center. Panelists generally agreed with the polling and discussed how their own organizations were seeking to bring change. William Intrilligator, music director and conductor of the Dubuque Symphony Orchestra, said the symphony had adapted a blind audition process to screen for potential biases and attempted to incorporate a greater diversity of instrumentation and guest artists. Gary Stoppelman, executive director of Dubuque Museum of Art, said the museum was moving to include an exhibit showcasing a black, indigenous, or person of color artist at least once a year, such as the current Black Thread exhibition by Des Moines artist Jill Wells. Stoppelman also drew attention to the growing diversity of Dubuque Community Schools, where nearly a quarter of the student body is made up of racial minorities compared to the city's much wider demographic composition and emphasized the need for direct outreach to that population. The Dubuque community schools look like the rest of the country, Stoppelman said. If we want to be building the community of the future, building the workforce of the future, we need to be building relationships with the people who are here today. That means exhibits tailored to younger and more diverse audiences, as well as making those opportunities more financially accessible when necessary. Jenny Peterson Brandt, Arts and Culture Affairs Coordinator for the City of Dubuque, said the city is offering grant support to both support smaller arts nonprofits, as well as to allow a larger audience to view those venues' output. If we're pro- providing funding to keep the light on and pay some staff, then they can have a lower ticket price, she said. And that brings us to the halfway point here of today's reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. Here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. All material heard here on IRIS is intended solely for the use of our audience. I'm your reader filling in. My name is Andrew Haup. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, then feel free to give us a call at 515-243-6833 or 1-877-404-4747. And now we'll take a look at today's obituaries in the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. We start off with Helen M. Schmidt of Balltown, Iowa. Helen M. Schmidt, age 83, of Balltown, passed away at 4.08 p.m. on Wednesday, February 8, 2023, at Stonehill Care Center, surrounded by her loving family. To honor Helen's life, family and friends may visit from 3 until 7 p.m. on Friday, today, February 10th, at St. Francis of Assisi Catholic Church. That's located at 468 Balltown Road where there will be a parish scripture wake service held at 2.30 p.m. That'd be going on about right now. There will also be visitation on Saturday from 9 a.m. until 10.15 a.m. at the church. Funeral services will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Saturday, February 11th, that's tomorrow, at St. Francis of Assisi Church with the Reverend Tyler C. Raymond officiating. Burial will be in St. Francis Cemetery. Bear Funeral Home is assisting the family. Helen was born April 7, 1939 in Balltown, Iowa, daughter of Arnold M. and Lorene Cummer Gansamer. 
Helen attended school in Balltown and went on to attend beauty school. She was united in marriage to the love of her life, Ronald Schmidt, on October 10, 1959 at St. Francis of Assisi Church. The couple have four wonderful children together and celebrated their 63rd wedding anniversary last year. Helen was a faith-filled woman who was a member of St. Francis of Assisi Church. She volunteered countless hours at the parish taking care of anything that needed to be done. Helen had a strong work ethic, a trait she passed on to her children. She helped out on the farm when she was young before going to work at Sorbo's where she sewed baby clothes. After finishing beauty school, she worked in the salon at Rochek's before opening her own salon in Balltown. She also drove school bus for the Western Dubuque School District for 24 years before officially retiring. Her community was very important to Helen. She helped out at Bright Box Country Dining, Wrapping, Silverware, Answering the Phones, and even made breakfast for all of the workers during the rebuilding process after the fires. In her free time, Helen put her seamstress skills to work. Helen made clothes for all of the children and was a fantastic quilter who looked forward to spending time with her fellow Soflakes. Soflakes. S-E-W Flakes. She was an outstanding wife, mom, and grandma who was always present for the kids' and grandkids' events. She was a wonderful woman who definitely made the world around her a better place. We will miss her tremendously. Those left to cherish Helen's memory include her husband, Ron Schmidt of Balltown, Iowa, her children, Kevin, married to Valerie Schmidt of Dubuque, Iowa, Mark married to Jean Ann Schmidt of Ankeny, Greg married to Michelle Schmidt of Winthrop, Iowa, and Amy married to Gary McDonald of Dubuque, Iowa. Eleven grandchildren, Peter married to Libby Schmidt, Rachel Schmidt, Mitchell married to Belle Schmidt, Laura married to Kellen Vance, Alicia married to Matt Kleinart, Marissa married to Paul Hunter, Jacob married to Janelle Schmidt, Ryan Schmidt, Nathan Schmidt, Will McDonald, and Maggie McDonald. Seven great-grandchildren, Liam, Eleanor, Ruby, Nora, Layton, Cade, Cameron, Brooks, and Weston. Her siblings, Ruth Schuster of Balltown, Iowa, John, known as Jack, married to Judy Gansimer of Balltown, Iowa, and Mike, married to Julie Gansimer of Dubuque, Iowa, and her aunts, uncle, and many nieces, nephews, and cousins. Helen was preceded in death by her parents, a granddaughter, Molly, two great-grandchildren, Keegan and Kendrick, a sister, Betty, married to Jim Wilgenbush, and a brother-in-law, Cleet Schuster. Helen's family would like to thank the nurses and staff of Hospice of Dubuque, especially Jessica and Amy D. Stonehill Care Center, and Unity Point Health Finley Hospital for all the care they provided for Helen. Also, a heartfelt thanks to Mike and Cindy Breitbach for all of their friendship throughout the years. The family will thankfully receive your support through greeting cards and memorials in Helen's memory, which may be mailed to Bear Funeral Home, 1491 Main Street in Dubuque, Iowa 52001. Attention, Helen Schmidt family. Online condolences may be left for the family at www.behrfuneralhome.com. Next up, we have Dennis A. Bennett. Dennis Denny A. Bennett, age 80, of Dubuque, Iowa, passed away on February 7, 2023, at Stonehill Care Center, surrounded by his family. According to his wishes, there will be no public services. A private burial service will take place at Dubuque Memorial Garden Cemetery. Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory at 2595 Rockdale Road is assisting the family. Denny was born on August 12, 1942, in Boone, Iowa, son of Arthur and Annabelle Nelson Bennett. He was united in marriage to Nelda Niehaus Dottie 
on August 24, 1985 in Dubuque. Denny is survived by his wife, Nelda, children Randy, married to Candy Bennett of Beresford, South Dakota, Julie Tornberg of Beresford, South Dakota, Bruce Bennett of Lex, South Dakota, and Bruce married to Christina Bennett of Boone, Iowa, stepdaughter Jennifer Lynn of Dubuque, Iowa, 11 grandchildren, 8 great-grandchildren, brother Rex married with uh, Otto DeLon Bennett of Napa, California. He was preceded in death by his parents, brother Michael Ben, Benny or Ben, and two stepsons, James and Jeffrey Doty. The family would like to thank the nurses and staff at Stonehill and Hospice of Dubuque, especially Courtney and Nicole, for all the great care they gave to Denny. Next up, we have Shirley Babka, 88, of Dubuque, who died on Wednesday, February 8, 2023. Visitation will be held from noon to 1.45 p.m. Monday, February 13th at Westminster Presbyterian Church, where services will follow at 2 p.m. Burial will take place in Linwood Cemetery. Egelhoff, Siegert, and Casper Funeral Home and Crematory at 2569 John F. Kennedy Road is assisting the family. From there we go to Robert E. Smirkina. Robert E. Bob Smirkina, age 87, of Dubuque, died Tuesday, February 7th, 2023, surrounded by his loving family. The Mass of Christian Burial will be at 11 a.m. Saturday, February 11th, 2023, at the Church of the Nativity with Reverend Monsignor James Miller officiating. Military honors will be conducted by the American Legion, post 6 of Dubuque, immediately following. A visitation will be held from 9.30 to 11 a.m. Saturday tomorrow at the church. Burial will be at a later date at St. Patrick's Cemetery in Monona, Iowa. Bob was born on July 27, 1935 in Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin, the son of George and Mary Tasar Smirkina. He spent much of his childhood with his many cousins getting into just the right amount of trouble. After graduation from Prairie du Chien High School, he enlisted in the United States Air Force. Bob served from 1954 to 1958 and was stationed in Chateau, France, for two years. He was proud of his military service and was lucky enough to participate in an honor flight to Washington, D.C. He married Roberta Bobby Burns on April 25, 1964, at the Church of the Nativity. Bob was a true gentleman, and with the love of his life, Bobby, they spent 57 years together, enjoying travel to Hawaii, Alaska, and Ireland, as well as bus trips to destinations across the U.S. Spending time with his children and grandchildren was his favorite way to spend the day. Bob was a proud union, union man and retired from John Deere in 1992. He was a machinist and union steward, insisting green was the only way to go. After retirement, Bob and his friends regularly met for breakfast to share stories and laughter. Bob was an avid gardener who enjoyed sharing his produce with neighbors and friends. He loved being outside and could usually be found taking walks, maintaining his beautiful lawn, or tending his garden. You could also find Bob helping others. He quietly found those in need and managed to make their lives a little easier. He didn't need recognition or thanks for his good deeds, just the satisfaction of knowing his good works were helpful. He will forever remain in the hearts of his wife, Bobby, children Sue married to Jack Pisarek of Polsbow, Washington, Sherry married to Scott Kerr of Monona, Iowa, and Steve with fiancé Deb Downs of, uh, their, his last name is Smirkina of Watertown, Massachusetts, Three grandchildren, Katie Pisarek, Christina Kerr, and Kelly Kerr. 
Brother-in-law, Norm Johnson, sisters-in-law, Charlotte Smirkina, and Lorianne Durkop, and many nieces and nephews. He was preceded in death by his parents, brothers Jim, John, John was married to Rosie, George, George was married to Norma, Francis, known as Bud, who was married to Mary, Donald in infancy, and Daniel, and his sisters Alice married to Joe McGrath, Marie Johnson, Ruth married to Tom McGrath, and Shirley Meyer. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be given to the hospice of Dubuque or Camp Courageous. A special thanks to the caregivers at Luther Banner, the wonderful team from the Hospice of Dubuque, and all those who sent cards or came to visit. He appreciated your thoughtfulness. The Egelhoff, Siegert, and Casper Funeral Home and Crematory is entrusted with arrangements. Other short obituaries include Lisa M. Schwarte, that last name spelled S-C-H-W-A-R-T-E, of West Des Moines, Iowa. Lisa M. Schwarte, age 52, of West Des Moines and formerly of Dyersville, died on Saturday, February 4th, 2023. Visitation will be held today, 6 to 8 p.m., Friday, February 10th, at Sacred Heart Catholic Church in West Des Moines, where a rosary service will follow. A massive Christian burial will take place at 10 a.m. Saturday, February 11th at the church, followed by burial in Rest Haven Cemetery in West Des Moines. The Caldwell Parish Funeral Home of Urbandale is assisting the family. Next, we have Michael J. Aird, last name spelled A-I-R-D. Michael J. Aird, age 60 of Dubuque, died on Sunday, February 5th, 2023. Private services were held. The Bear Funeral Home of 1491 Main Street is assisting the family. From there, we have Stephen F. McCabe, that last name spelled M-C-C-A-B-E, of Fillmore, Iowa. Stephen F. McCabe, age 62, of Fillmore, died on Wednesday, February 8, 2023. Visitation will be held from noon to 4 p.m. Sunday, February 12th, at Rife Funeral Home in Cascade. A massive Christian burial will take place at 10.30 a.m. Monday, February 13th, at Sacred Heart Catholic Church in Fillmore. Burial will be in the church cemetery. From there we go to Richard A. Simmons of Bellevue, Iowa. Richard A. Dick Simmons, age 79, of Bellevue, died on Tuesday, February 7th, 2023. A celebration of life will be held from 11.30 a.m. to 4 p.m. Saturday, February 11th, with a sharing of memories at 2.30 p.m. at Horizon Hall in Bellevue. The Hockman Meyer Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Bellevue is assisting the family. We have these funeral services taking place in the next few days. The first for Brenda L. Carper of Manchester, Iowa, celebration of life 2 to 6 p.m. Sunday, February 12th at the Delaware County Community Center in Manchester. Matteo F. Cristalago of Dubuque, visitation 10 a.m. to noon, Saturday, February 11th at the Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory at 2595 Rockdale Road. Services noon Saturday at the Funeral Home. From there, we have Barbara L. Fisher of Madison, Wisconsin, visitation 10 to 11 a.m. Saturday, tomorrow, February 11th, at Christ Lutheran Church in Lancaster, Wisconsin. Services at 11 a.m. Saturday at the church. From there, we go to William Glasson of Galena, Illinois. Visitation is 10 a.m. to noon, Saturday, February 11th, at Furlong Funeral Chapel in Galena. Service is at noon, Saturday at the chapel. Maria Alina Guerrero of Dubuque, celebration of life, 4 to 8 p.m. today at Grand River Center. Massive Christian burial takes place tomorrow, 10.30 a.m. Saturday, February 11th at St. Patrick Catholic Church. We have Margaret A. Kersher of Dubuque, massive Christian burial, 10.30 a.m. today, which would have taken place already, and that was at the St. Columkill Catholic Church. 
Michael Klein of Rona, Wisconsin. Visitation, 10.30 a.m. Saturday, February 11th, tomorrow at St. Anthony Catholic Church. Service is at 11 a.m. Saturday at the church. Joseph L. Lewis of Dickeyville, Wisconsin. Visitation is 1 to 3 p.m. Sunday, February 12th at Miller Funeral Home of East Dubuque, Illinois. Service is at 11 a.m. Monday, February 13th at the Mueller Memorial Chapel at Linwood Cemetery. From there, we have James Manternak of Monticello, Iowa. Visitation 9 to 11 a.m. Saturday, February 11th, tomorrow at Sacred Heart Catholic Church of Monticello. Massive Christian burial will be 11 a.m. Saturday at the church. William J. Meyer of Dubuque, Massive Christian Burial, 10.30 a.m. today. That already happened at St. Patrick Catholic Church. Norma J. Orton at Platteville, Wisconsin. Visitation was 9 to 11 a.m. Saturday, February 11th. That's, uh, not was, is, that's tomorrow. Melby Funeral Home and Crematory is in charge of arrangements. They are in Platteville. Services 11 a.m. Saturday at the funeral home. Carol A. Rathel, that last name is spelled... R-A-I-T-H-E-L of Earlville, Iowa. Visitation, 3 to 8 p.m. today at the Clifton Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Earlville. Massive Christian Burial, 1 p.m. Saturday, February 11th at St. Joseph Catholic Church of Earlville. From there we go to Jennifer L. Rue of Galena, Illinois. Committal service at noon today. That's already taken place, and that was at St. Michael's Cemetery in Galena. Mm -hmm. Four more here. Thomas F. Scholl, last name spelled S-C-H-O-L-L, of Dubuque. Massive Christian burial was at 10.30 a.m. today at Holy Ghost Catholic Church. Gary R. Stadel of Shapville, Illinois. Visitation 4 to 7 p.m. today at the Miller Steinke Funeral Home in Scales Mound, Illinois. Next is Stanley J. Wetter of Cuba City, Wisconsin. Parish Wake Service, 2.45 p.m. today. That's taking place this hour at Casey McNett Funeral Home and Cremation Service, Cuba City. Visitation is 3 to 7 p.m. today at the funeral home and from 9 to 9.45 a.m. Saturday, February 11th at St. Rose of Lima Catholic Church in Cuba City. The massive Christian burial will be at 9.45 a.m. Saturday at the church. And finally, our last mentioned here is Footville, Wisconsin, of Janet Wicker. Jeanette Wicker of Footville, Wisconsin. Her service was at 10.30 a.m. today at the Sinawa Mound in Sinawa, Wisconsin. We have some births to mention to you after all of these numerous obituaries. Tuesday, February 7th, 2023, of Splinter, Craig and Allison Splinter is their last name, of Dubuque, a girl at Unity Point Health, Finley Hospital, Dubuque. Winters Howard, Stephen Winters and Rachel Howard of Dyersville, a girl at Finley. Wednesday, February 8th, 2023, last name Winchell, Ryan and Kate Winchell of Dubuque, a girl at Mercy One Dubuque Medical Center. And finally, Thursday, February 9th, 2023, McLaughlin, Nate and Alex McLaughlin of Dubuque, a boy at Mercy One. One note to bring you here, um, iconic pop composer Burt Bacharach dies, or Bacharach. He wrote a lot of songs. Some very popular songs. Some Dionne Warwick songs. This written by Hillel Atali of the Associated Press, Stateline, New York. Burt Bacharach, or Bacharach, however you say it, Bacharach, the singularly gifted 
and popular composer who delighted millions with the quirky arrangements and unforgettable melodies of Walk On By, Do You Know the Way to San Jose, and dozens of other hits, has died at age 94. The Grammy, Oscar, and Tony Award-winning Bacharach died Wednesday at home in Los Angeles of natural causes, publicist Tina Brosman said Thursday. Over the past 70 years, only Lennon, McCartney, Carole King, and a handful of others rivaled his genius for instantly catchy songs that remained performed, played, and hummed along after they were written. He had a run of top 10 hits from the 1950s into the 21st century, and his music was heard everywhere from movie soundtracks and radios to home stereo systems and iPods. Whether Alfie and I Say a Little Prayer or I'll Never Fall in Love Again and This Guy's In Love With You, Herb Alpert hit. Dionne Warwick was his favorite interpreter, but Bacharach, usually in tandem with lyricist Hal David, also created prime material for Aretha Franklin, Dusty Springfield, Tom Jones, and many others. Elvis Presley, the Beatles, and Frank Sinatra were among the countless artists who covered his songs, with more recent performers who sung or sampled him, including White Stripes, Twista, and Ashanti. Walk On By Alone was covered by everyone from Warwick to Isaac Hayes to the British punk band The Stranglers and Cindy Lauper. Bacharach was both an innovator and throwback, and his career seemed to run parallel to the rock era. He grew up on jazz and classical music and had little taste for rock when he was breaking into the business in the 1950s. His appeal seemed more aligned with the Tin Pan Alley than with Bob Dylan, John Lennon, and other writers who later emerged, but rock composers appreciated the depth of his seemingly old-fashioned sensibility. The shorthand version of him is that he's something to... Do with easy listening, Elvis Costello, who wrote the 1998 album Painted from Memory with Bacharach, said in a 2018 interview with the Associated Press. It may be agreeable to listen to these songs, but there's nothing easy about them. Try playing them. Try singing them. A box set, the songs of Bacharach and Costello, is due to come out March 3rd. I probably listened to a Burt Bacharach song this week on the radio. They're all over the place. They're wonderful. It's so sad to lose him. Some opinion news now. This out of the Telegraph Herald. With Bob Woodward, their publisher, and Amy Gilligan, their executive editor. Our view, quick takes, school consolidation connected to state aid. They give a sad, not smiley face. You know, like a smiley face, they give a sad face. Anyway, on Monday, a task force recommended that the Dubuque Community School District construct a new school at the site of Washington Middle School as part of a plan to consolidate the district's middle schools from 3 to 2. On Tuesday, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds signed into law a 3% increase in supplemental state aid to public schools. Dubuque residents concerned about the former must connect the dots to the latter. The middle school consolidation plan is a direct result of the school district's need to operate efficiently and put as many tax dollars as possible toward educating students. With state aid poised to increase at less than half the rate of inflation, school district coffers are shrinking. Consolidation would result in a reduction of approximately $3.4 million annually from the district's operating budget. Consolidating and closing schools think the recent closure of Fulton Elementary are the kinds of difficult decisions impacting our community born out of state funding levels. The problem isn't that the state doesn't have the money. The 3% increase in supplemental state aid equates to $107 million. 
As Representative Lindsey James, Democrat of Dubuque, points out, the state passed $106 million in proposed corporate tax cuts, as well as the Students' First Act, which has a year one price tag of $107 million. Representative Shannon Lundgren, Republican of Piasta, still has hopes of squeezing more dollars for public schools from the state through appropriations. Here's hoping she can find traction with that effort. Regardless, as Dubuque schools sustain major changes, remember the financial challenges begin in Des Moines. A smiley face for this one. After two decades of hard work, Community Foundation of Greater Dubuque continues to grow philanthropic giving into programs that reach those in need. When it was founded in 2003, the foundation was nothing more than a post office box in the Roshek building and an idea to provide residents with a way to give back to their community. Two decades later, that post office box has expanded to a multi-floor office, 25 employees, and more than $100 million in assets, but its founding idea remains intact. Since its founding, the nonprofit has awarded nearly $70 million in grants and hosts more than 270 nonprofit endowment funds in seven Iowa counties, Alamakee, Clayton, Clinton, Delaware, Dubuque, Jackson, and Jones. Whether it's grants to increase technological capacity within nonprofits, efforts to get free books in the hands of students at Title I schools, facilitating community conversations around diversity, equity, and inclusion, supporting the development of an arts nonprofit, or developing a program to improve early grade-level literacy in the area. The Community Foundation is making a positive difference in our community. Congratulations to Executive Director Nancy Van Milligan and the Community Foundation team for bridging the gap between those who have something to give and those in need in our community. The foundation has turned the generosity of passionate donors into real programs and initiatives that help people throughout the area. Finally, Dubuque City Council members get a sad face. This week, preliminary set the the preliminary set the city's maximum property tax levy amount for fiscal year 2024 at $26,546,601. That total represents a 1.6% increase over the previous fiscal year and equates to a maximum property tax rate of about $9.89 per $1,000 of assessed value, up from the current rate of $9.69 per $1,000. City Manager Mike Van Milligan proposed an increase to cover raises for city employees as part of a recruitment and retention program. The city has struggled to hire and retain firefighters and police officers, among other positions. Additionally, the city will lose more than $627,000 in state revenue because of a state miscalculation in property tax valuations. However, the amount that Van Milligan asked for was an increase of 0.7%, less than half of what the majority of the council agreed to. Council member Susan Farber proposed the higher maximum levy. She said it would give council members more flexibility in determining how many city projects to fund next fiscal year. When it comes to taxpayer dollars, governing bodies shouldn't build in a cushion for what-ifs. Van Milligan and city staff spelled out what was needed, and the council decided to double it just in case. Credit goes to Mayor Brad Kavanaugh and Councilmember David Resnick for balking at the change and voting no. It's unfortunate that clearer thinking didn't carry the vote, but the tax rate is not just yet. It is not set just yet. We urge council members to look hard at the figures, listen to their constituents, and reduce the rate. All right, those are some editorials there. As uh, we wrap up this reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for today. It is Friday, February the 10th, 2023.
here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. This is Andrew Haupt filling in, saying it's great to be here, great to be with you. Have a nice weekend, everyone. Thank you so much for listening, and straight ahead. <laughs>